0: See everybody my name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, this is your first time with us. We're glad you're here. welcome and uh, we are in a series that'm i calling Christ in Culture, trying to take a look at some of the uh, hot spots of culture and where the church uh, you know how the church faces uh, faces the culture challenges that we have and what does the scripture have to say about this. Last week we talked about sex and we thought that was a hot topic, but um, we're, just, we're just getting in more trouble it looks like. <laughs> you know, this morning I am going to be talking about the, the whole topic of homosexuality because, uh, well, you'll see why in a few minutes. But I read a statistic this past week that was, um, it really concerned me. It, it said that 91% of 16 to 19-year-olds believe the church is homophobic, hypocritical, and judgmental. The 16 to 19-year-olds. And some of that comes from the way that we treat people and, and uh, the way we've responded. Plus, we've got people who get up on television that su- supposedly represent all of us and say things, sometimes dumb things. And, and you know, people believe that's, that's all of us. And so we, you know, when it comes to this issue, the church uh, has, you know, has not done a good job with it. We really haven't done, and when I say the church, I mean the church overall, over, you know, overall. I've been reading about this issue for studying and researching this for five years now, so I'm finally getting around to the sermon on it. Somebody said, is your hand shaking, Tim? I said, no, not really. And uh, finally getting around to, to speaking on it because uh, uh, we need to talk about it. We need to. You've got a handout uh, or a fill-in in your handout this morning if you want to take it out. I want to start right up front with one, and you can just track along with me, and that is that this topic that we're talking about is a volatile topic. It's volatile. It, it's, it's one that causes a reaction almost immediately. The minute you bring the topic up, if you want to have a discussion about it, um, you know, depending on your opinion and your where you are with this, it can get heated very quickly, um, sometimes too quickly, because we can't have a conversation, it seems like, because it, it's so volatile. It, why is it so volatile? Because it involves our sexuality. It involves emotions. It, evol- it involves our relationships, people that we love, that we care about. And so anything that uh, has those topics involved in it, we can become very uh, uh, defensive and protective over. And so it's a volatile topic. So I'm going to ask you, church, if you would, please, through this, through this sermon this morning, if you will stick with me for the next 20, 25 minutes. And, if, it, if the going gets rough in any moment you say i'm going to I'm going to stay in my seat i'm going to stick it out and and stick it out with me ride with me through this sermon as we take a look at the scripture and your next feeling is this because this topic is complex it's not as simple as some people want to make it out to be it's complex because again it it has to do with people it has to do with certain assumptions and presumptions about what christians believe and um you know, there's the, the complexity of do we, those of us who are Christians, really have the right, and I want to tell you, I'm not going to answer all these questions this morning in 25 minutes, but these are questions that show you how complex it is. Do we as Christians have the right to push onto the country and onto other people who are not followers of Christ a certain belief that we have? Now, the, those who follow Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit within us to convict us, to empower us. And listen, church, we have a hard time being obedient, right? Sometimes, do we not? Now, do we have the right to step into, another, into the culture and to say, you cannot do this, you cannot behave like this, you can't, you can't, you can't, when we have our own struggles and we got the help of God in other areas? That's a complex issue to me. I mean, I ask myself, do I have the right to do that? Do I have the right to push on into culture from my own convictions? I mean, that's something I think we have to ask. Then there's families involved. There's emotions involved. There's a certain amount of value that we either take away from people or we attach to people depending on what we like and all of this. And so it's, it's just a very complex subject. Uh, does homosexuality, does that word mean just being attracted to the same sex? Or does that mean homosexual intercourse? Which does it mean? And what, you know, where do we land on all of that? But having said all this, your next fill in, this topic is essential. We have to talk about it. We have to talk about it as a, as a community of faith because the community of faith is made up of people. People. Real humans. I know people don't believe churches are filled with humans sometimes, but they are filled with broken human beings. That's what the church is made up of. Trying to learn to live the way Christ has called us to live. It's essential we have a talk because this this involves families, this involves friends, uh, it involves so much. uh, And we're a redeeming community. That's what we want to be known for. I'm not happy. That 16 to 19-year-olds look at, ride by this 27th Avenue and see a sign that says Seaco's Vineyard Church and go, ah, a bunch of hypocrite, hypocrite homophobes, I'm not going in there, they don't have anything to offer me, I'll just go in there and they'll judge me, and I, you know, they don't care about my friends, I'm not satisfied with that, I don't want them to see a tattoo across my forehead, you know wherever I am, knowing that I'm a pastor, whether I'm sitting on the water or surfing or I'm somewhere else along the beach, I don't want them to see that. And I don't want them to think that's this church because I don't think that is this church. But we still got a topic to deal with. We still have to look at the scripture. We have to let it press into us. It's a sad thing that the church, uh, that maybe one issue like this can define the entire church. Suddenly people don't, they, they forget that, Christian faith and the churches have been the founders of the, most of the hospitals, most of the relief efforts, the universities. I mean, it was, you know, it was the Christians back over the last 1,500 years, 1,700 years anyway, after about 300 you know, A.D. right on along that the Christians came along and started establishing hospitals and establishing uh, universities and, and offering help to the poor and to the disenfranchised. We were known for that. The Christians were known for that for over a thousand fifteen hundred years, and now one issue comes along and it redefines everything people don 't see all the good that we 've done or are doing even now and I think that's it's a shame and yeah, part of it is because certain gay activists will get up and distort the message of the church and misunderstand it and mis uh, you know represent it but we've got some spokesmen you know in our Christendom that get up and do the same thing and misrepresent some of us, and so um we've got to talk about it, and your next feeling is this, and this is this topic is confusing. some of you don't know how to think about this. you're like, I read my Bible, but then I have friends, and I live in this culture, and I have people I care about and I love, and I'm just confused tim i don't i I don't understand this I mean. It's confusing. Is it biologically caused or is it nurture? Is it nature? Is it nurture? And in all honesty, we're at the place now where a lot of gay people don't care about the reason why. They just go, hey, I have the right to love who I want to love. And I don't care what causes it. It doesn't matter to me. I know how strong I feel. And so, you know, who is the church to step in? And I want to tell you this. I have a, I have a history of having... Known many, many wonderfully gay people still do, and I've worked with, i got friends who died of AIDS. Uh, you know, I've led groups with men uh, and gone to meetings and trying to explore how to deal with this issue over the last 20, 25 years. So I speak from a heart of love, compassion, and pastoring for all people. And, uh, and so this topic is it's important to me because it involves people. And anytime something involves people, it should be important to the church. And the way we approach it, we should approach it with much humility. And I'm not going to be able to answer every question today. I thought about doing a Q&A, <laughs> but I don't have time for that with a third service coming in. But uh, I thought it would be really interesting to hear, you know, hear, get some feedback. I'd love to do that sometime. But today we're going to pray and we're going to jump into this and take a look at this issue. And you guys can, you guys can pray for me. Since I'm the one up here talking this morning. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. That's what we were just singing about. Let grace abound. Let freedom abound here, Lord. And uh, you have called us to freedom. And I ask for your help today, Lord, with this subject. Um, This is not just a topic. This is people's lives. And so I ask for you to help me. Holy Spirit, you are the guide, the comforter, the teacher of all things. When you touch our heart, you can change us in a moment. You can console us, comfort us, correct us. But you're always there to help us. And so we invite you to come today. Come be among us, Lord. And I ask for you to breathe life on your word, Jesus, that we would see your heart and that you would come and do your good work in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, I, uh, we looked at Genesis 2 because we talked about sex last week, and the microphone melted on me last week in the sermon. And uh, somebody said in the first service, it just got too hot. It was too hot of a sermon, Tim. And both microphones went out <laughs> during the sermon in the first service. And, uh, but we went back to Genesis 2 because I think what we have to do to set this up is look at God's original design, and that's your next fill-in, God's design What is it that God had in mind when he started this whole thing of relationships? And like I said, hang with me, hang with me in this. Over in Genesis 2 and 18, I'm not going to read through all of this because I've got so much to cover this morning. But uh, the Lord God says it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper, that is someone to come alongside, someone of equal value that will complement the man. And as I said jokingly last week, this is... The first time we see the splitting of the Adam right here. Adam is split, and we have Eve, and uh, we get a picture of what God intends for us. And, and that is that it's almost like a picture of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that they're of equal worth and dignity, but they're different. The man and the woman are different. God the Father is not God the Son, and God the Son is not God the Spirit. But yet they're all God. Now, I know that's a mystery. The Bible even says it's a mystery. But when he created man and woman, it was a picture of that beautiful complementarianism that he brings them alongside one another to, to be co-partners with each other. But they were different. I mean, Adam could have left the man altogether one unit, but he didn't. He split him. He split him, and he says, the two will become one. He used to have one, but it wasn't good for one to be alone, so he took the one, split it, and they two and said, they're going to come together as one and be a picture of the Trinity and also eventually of Christ in the church, of that fidelity, that faithfulness. So we see this early on in Ephesians 5, 31 through 32, Paul brings this metaphor home even more so when he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. It's a metaphor. And one, yeah, one, people preach that oneness different ways. You become one, and it does involve how you work together and, you know, Karen and I've been married for gosh, July, be forty three years. We've been married, you know. Woo, rock on! And uh, you know, through the years, it's funny because we can almost—I know exactly what she's about to say, you know—and it's not always what I'm going to say. I got to tell you, but uh, (laughs) because we're two, but we complement each other. But you get to know one another so well, and there's that complementarity, and that's that picture again of of God and Jesus and the church together. And it's a profound mystery, Paul says. It's hard to understand, but even in the sexual act, this is a PG sermon, by the way, if you've got kids, uh, even, uh, if, even in the sexual act, that oneness of the two different coming together to form one is a picture of the unity of Christ in the church. Uh, you'll never think of sex the same again, will you? If you say, Lord, we are about to celebrate your oneness with your church. You know, when you crawl in the bed at night. You know, but that is the metaphor that God is using to show that unity and that oneness and that the difference, there's there's two different now, and they fit together. And so marriage is supposed to be exclusive, loving. It's a sacrificial, self-giving union, and it's a metaphor for Christ and the church. And when sex and sexuality is healthy, it points to Christ in the church, and it points to the Trinity. And so this, God's very serious about sex. I mean, he gave it to us as steward. It's a great gift. It's a metaphor. It's powerful. And uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, I quote him a lot here. The writer, you know, uh, if you don't know who he is, you should read some of his books. You've probably seen his movies. Well, he's been dead a while, I think. But, uh, you know, The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, Chronicles of Narnia, all of that. But C.S. Lewis says... There is no getting away from it. The Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. And that is what the Scripture lays out for us. And, um, you know, being faithful in marriage is what the church was known for very early on. In the first 200, 300 years of the church's life, The Christian believers that lived in that ancient time were especially strange to the surrounding cultures because they remained married to one another for life. The Romans, you know, and the Greeks, they had a little bit of a different lifestyle. Uh, But the Christians coming out of Christ's resurrection stayed committed. They were known for being a couple of things. They were known for taking care of the poor. Three things that they were known for. Rodney Stark, a Christian uh, historian, says, taking care of the poor of being faithful to one another in marriage and no abortions. That was three distinctives they had in the early church because all of them had to do with life. And so the Christian church, the early church, was known for that. And it's, you know, it's only been in the last few years that people are redefining what we are. And, uh, and there's no doubt that you know, our perspective of what healthy sex is has been obscured. And we mentioned that last week, and it's been kind of hijacked. But God has his view. He has his design. And in his design, he wants us to reflect his glory, that he gives glory to him. It reflects him appropriately and rightly. And you know what? We don't do that well. We don't do that well. We need help. We don't need help just in the area of homosexuality. We need help in heterosexuality. We have a problem living it out appropriately in that area. We need help in our marriages. What does God wish for your sex lives, husbands and wives? Uh, I think it was Count von Zinzendorf, the founder of the Moravian movement, that that used the term that we all come to Christ in a bent mode. Like we've been living like from birth. We were like this. We were bent. And we live through life. We get so used to living like this. When we come to Jesus, Jesus begins to work on us to straighten us up, to try to lean into his plan and his design. But that's not comfortable. I mean, if you've ever had a limb that's frozen up on you and you need to get it back loose again, it takes a lot of work and it's painful at times. But when the Holy Spirit comes into our life and we begin to follow Christ, he goes to work. You know, we're bent, like, "Ah, that's not comfortable. But God is bending us, straightening us out in order to reflect what his initial plan was. So that we reflect him well and represent him well. There's only six or seven verses in the whole Bible that deal with homosexuality. Um, The Hebrews, this was something I was very interested in when I started this study is to find out where the Hebrews were in this. Because Jesus was a good Hebrew. He was a rabbi and he didn't talk about homosexuality. And so I'm like, well, why didn't you say anything about it? You know, why didn't you? And as you study in through The Old Testament, and you look at the Hebrew way of life. The reason you don't hear anything about it is because it was basically non-existent, at least in the Hebrew life. It was not in the Romans. I've read enough about Roman sexuality for the last three years. I don't want to know anymore. You know, like I didn't know they made graffiti back in 32 BC. You know, like this, some of the words they had. And uh, but that was that was a different culture that surrounded the Hebrew culture, the culture that Jesus came from. The culture that the Old Testament comes out of and that he speaks from didn't have that. Didn't, it was not prevalent. And so uh, that's why we don't see that. But we do know he was a good Jew. He was a good Jewish teacher and leader. And so the Hebrews has no history of that. And uh, Paul nor any of the writers in the Bible would have a clue what sexual orientation meant. They wouldn't, they wouldn't know what you're talking about. The only thing they would know is behavior, what a person did, these sexual acts, the way it was carried out. They would speak to that, but they wouldn't have known a thing about sexual orientation. So with all of this, you know, in mind, we need to remember God's design. So let's just look at some of the scriptures that are kind of the hot-button Uh, scriptures here, Leviticus 18.22 says, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does a woman. This is detestable. Leviticus 20.13 If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. And I know what you're thinking, Tim, that's the Old Testament, there's all kind of weird stuff in the Old Testament. I mean, we live at the beach, we eat shellfish, right? A lot of it love oysters and love, you know, shrimp and all of this. Well, you couldn't do that in the Old Testament. They wouldn't let you eat certain foods, right? Well, you know, that's weird, you know, antiquated stuff. But maybe this will help you. There were three laws that the Hebrews lived by. One was civil law. God gave them a civil law on how to run their nation as a nation. That is, there were were laws dealing with crimes. There were laws dealing with uh, government issues that God gave them and they came up with. And, uh, but all of those are not, uh, they don't apply anymore because the kingdom of God has been opened up beyond the Jews. Now it is open to all of us, the Gentiles. And so we are not, we're, we don't have to follow the Old Testament civil laws. They're no longer applicable. And then there's the ceremonial laws that the Jewish people had in the Old Testament. And that is how the sacrifices were made. Well, we don't do sacrifices anymore. And how holidays were to be celebrated and which ones were to be celebrated and all of that and how they were to be conducted. But we don't have to do that anymore because Jesus fulfilled all of the expectations of the ceremonial law. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The sacrifice has been made once and for all. So the ceremonial laws are no longer, we don't have to, you know, we don't have to abide by those. But there's a third law, the moral law. That we read. The moral law is what reflects God's holiness. That reflects who he is in his plan for humanity. And that doesn't change because he doesn't change. It's who he is, his holiness, his righteousness, his purity. And those moral aspects of the law don't change. They're carried right on in to the New Testament. And Jesus, if anything, raised the bar a little higher, didn't he? I mean, it was, don't get divorced except for pornea, except for sexual sins. And then he goes, don't even look at a woman with lust. What? You know, Jesus didn't lower the bar. He's, he raised it, it sounds like. And so, you know, we have God's design, what reflects his holiness and his purity. And then your next fill in is, but we have culture's distortion. Culture's distortion. And uh, probably, I think, we have the Christian culture's distortion as well as our uh, postmodern culture's distortion of this as well. But over in Romans 1, 21 through 31, we have probably the, the, the most pointed text when it comes to homosexuality in the Bible. And so let's, let's, we're going for it, so let's go for it, right? So uh, 1, 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie Just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful, and they invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Wow. Man, Paul's kind of getting a little pointed with the Roman Christians, isn't he? Did anybody notice anything in this passage? Particular? Homosexuality is not the only thing in this list. Did you notice that? filled with wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, envy, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips in the church, no. Get out of here. It would never happen in a church. No. Slanderers in a church, no. Get. God haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful, invent ways to be evil, disobedient to parents, Right in there. Do you read this? It's in there. It's in there. No understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. I mean, we really have to approach this issue with much humility because I'm sure you can find yourself in that list somewhere. If not, just take arrogant and uh, use that one. I mean, it, it requires humility for us as a church to approach a subject like this. Our own biased Christian culture can stort this perspective, and that is that there's one sin worse than another sin. Well, that one, you know, God's really going to get you for. But this one, mine's only a two on the ten scale. Let me ask you this. If you could go down to the airport to catch a flight to California, and you are one minute late and the plane leaves, do you call up and go, man, I almost made it? Is that what you call up and say one minute? Whether you're 15 minutes late or one minute, you still miss the plane. So, wherever you are on this list, you miss the plane. You miss the plane. We've all got work to do when it comes to living life the way God has called us to it. And it's very important for us when we deal with these issues to keep a humble stance. Um, Gay marriage is not the biggest thing and the most awful thing in the world for the church to get all upset about. I read these statistics this week and I, was a, I couldn't believe it. 41% of all marriages fail. Now the Christian church is doing a lot better because only 40% of them fail. 1%, we're rocking, you know, we're really doing a lot of good work here, you know, in the church. 41% of marriages fail, 60% of second marriages fail, 73% of third marriages fail. Okay, there's about 60 million marriages, current marriages in America. If you take 40%, we'll assume they're all good church-going people. So we'll use the 40%. 40% of that 60 million gives us 24 million couples who are going to divorce. 24 million couples. There's, what, 130,000-plus gay marriages in America? And we've got 24 million divorces happening in America That's, let's see, that means gay marriages occur about a half a percent as frequently as Christians get divorced. That's a 185 to 1 ratio. So we got a lot of work to do in a lot of areas. And so we approach this with some great humility. And, you know, if you're wondering, I just, I want to say this too, and I have been asked, you know, I believe God's design and the best is a man and a woman in marriage. But we are bent and we are hurt and broken when we come into this world. And God is all about redeeming. I've been asked to, do do I do gay weddings? And I have said with great compassion to people, no, I don't. And I can't see me ever doing that. I can't. And uh, because of God's design and what I see him, what he wants, his great desire for humanity, I I can't do that with, with any sense of You know, I just can't do it scripturally. It doesn't mean I don't love the people and care for them at all, but I I can't do it because it's not God's best. I feel like His design. Romans one let let's just look at this before we bring this to a close. Romans one twenty four. take this scripture apart. Therefore God gave them over, listen to this, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Romans 1.26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. Romans 1.28, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. Have you ever wanted something so badly that you just pressed and pressed and pressed into, you got it? I mean, you were asking God for it, and it seemed like God was not going to give it to you, but you were like, I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it. And so finally you got it, and when you got it, you went, oh, man, I wish I hadn't got this. You know, it's, I mean, it can be anything from, you know, you find somebody, you... You think you love and you want them, you know, you want them, you want them, you want them, them, and it's like God is blocking you, blocking you, blocking you. And the more you pray for it, the more frustrated you get God, give me that person, give me that person. And you keep pressing in and pressing in, and finally you get them. And then when you get into that situation, you go, oh man, what in the world? Why did I, what happened to me? See, this scripture is pointing to the fact that it's not that God is going to judge people later on for their sins. It is that when God steps back in our decisions that we make, that is his judgment. It's not, God's, it's, it's not God's grace to step back and let us have what we want. That is God's judgment now. It's like, okay, if you want this, go for it. If you don't want to listen to me, I want this job, I want this job, I want this job. God says, no, nah, you don't want this job either. I know some things you don't know. No, I want this job, I want this job. You get the job. Now you're never home. You don't get to see your kids. You don't get to see your family. You don't have time for anything. You drop out of church. It's business, business, business. And then one, sometime way down the road, you wake up one day and you go, what has happened? Why did I do this? God's stepping back. If you want that and you don't want my design for you, here it is. Go for it. That is God's judgment. It's not God's judgment when we get called. We think, God's judging me. I got called in this. No, that's God's grace. That's the privilege of repentance. That's the privilege of repentance. It's not God's judgment when you keep doing what you want again and again without any conscience. That is just like you go on and on till you don't even know what, what God wants anymore. Romans goes on to say, Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God, for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals. In Romans 1.25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. And see, that's, that's it. We worship the created thing and not him. And when we worship the created being, whatever it is, we become idol worshipers. And then God steps back. If you want to worship that idol and you want to give your life to that idol... Have at it. I've been trying to warn you. I've been trying to tell you I have a design, but I'm going to step back if you want it, and then maybe you'll wake up. So he steps back, and he lets us have what we want. Romans 1.26, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Romans 1.27 In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. When we move away from God, from God's design, his created order, we take creation all the way back to Genesis and we turn it upside down. God had a way for it to fit together and for it to look good and for it to be blessed. But when we take anything like that and we flip it up on its head, it no longer fits together right it doesn't work right it doesn't reflect his holiness and his his uh, glory anymore i mean we worship nature we fall down to nature and we worship animals and we our life revolves around so much other than god and instead of a faithful exclusive relationship in a marriage between a man and a woman we turn creation on its head sexually and so adultery the word pornea which just includes adultery and fornication and anything to do with sexual practice that would ruin a marriage or ruin someone's life all of that becomes a part of the god that we have and an idol that we hold now before you get really uh saying that's the way i feel mm, you know and uh some people or start gay bashing and, and all of this which is makes me sick on my stomach but um we need to read on in the scripture in Romans 2, 1 through 4 because Paul is setting a sting up here. <laughs> he's, pulling, he's getting ready to slap us around a little bit more. Romans 2, 1 through 4. You, he's talking to you, me. Therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Remember that list? Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead to repentance? There's that humility. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53.6, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. First John 1 John 1.10, If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So how should we respond? As a church, what should we do? This is your, your last fill-ins here, this. We should respond with love, like we would anyone, to anybody. We respond with love. People are people. You know, I don't walk up to you and go, "Hi, I'm Tim, a heterosexual." You know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, when you, when you see people, you need to see people. You know, you see people who have families, and you see people who have jobs, and you see people who have do great art, and they do music, and they have a life, and they have friends, and and they're people; they're human beings, and we love people. Jesus came for people, to redeem people. And so, you know, we find out we're like, man, what, what's your hobbies, and what do you do, and and I mean, we find out, and we, what is their humanity like? We're not we're not solely defined by our sexuality. I don't know anybody that does that. You know, we don't walk up and go, well, tell me about your sexuality. Well, you, you know, we, we want to find out where you're from. What do you do? You know, what's your job like? You know, tell me some things about yourself. People are people and we love people. Some of you may be thinking, gosh, Tim, I cannot love. I can't love people that are struggling with homosexual issues or those that aren't struggling, they just settled it. I can't love them. Yeah, you can. You've got some practice loving people that are hard to love. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite quotes from him, he says, there is someone that I love even though I don't approve of what he does. There is someone I accept though some of his thoughts and actions revolt me. There is someone I forgive though he hurts the people I love the most. That person is me. That person is me. So you got some practice loving someone that sometimes lets you down and revolts you yourself that's the place we start with love loving people we don't start with what we disagree with people on we start with friendship with love and we start with your next one with grace we extend grace you know there is no other faith like Christianity because Jesus gives us a first time a second time Third time. Some of you guys are on your like 180th time here with God, you know. But Jesus is always like, come on, come on, come on. You know, there is no other faith like that one, like this one, the one that we, like Jesus, because it goes on and on. He is always there to receive you. There is always enough grace for you. And so we are the people of grace. Did you know this book is filled with failures? There are more failures in this book than successes. This is a book with the stories of The failure of people that God used. David. Murder, adultery, but he used David. Moses, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca. I mean, Peter, the great apostle, you know. Paul. All of these guys. Gideon, Aaron, Samson. So many in this book. But yet God extended grace to them and they're in the book so we extend grace and we want to we want to respond with hope for people hope and that is a rare commodity these days hope and that hope first is the fact that people can be accepted and loved where they are and then the hope yeah the hope of change comes as we receive people and we accept them and i do believe in change but i tell you what I believe in fidelity. I believe that ma- I want to tell you where I come from. Marriage, man and woman, and anything other than that in marriage is to be com- completely pure in your sexual behavior. That is God's design. And so we respond with hope, all of us with that hope, that we can live this life. And lastly, we as a church respond with community. We welcome people into our community. I dare say this is probably the most powerful and challenging for all of us, is to embrace people, human beings, into our life. Friendship goes a long ways toward healing. Acceptance and love goes a long ways toward the healing of God. We will read one last scripture to you, and this came out, and the band can come on up. Um, this just came out in my studies last week actually and I was doing some word studies and I got to Romans twelve one, and some of you guys know this scripture and um, it says therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God this is your true and proper worship now what I didn't notice and have never seen before is that we're Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies. That is plural, right? Bodies. As a living what? Sacrifice singular. Paul is saying the church offers its body with one sacrifice. It's not each person having to do their own thing. It's the church body doing it together. Paul says the church body takes their bodies and they say here's our sacrifice you're not in it alone and what we give to God we give together and when we journey we journey together and God gets the glory let's pray we hope you enjoyed this week's podcast from Seacoast Vineyard Church in Myrtle Beach South Carolina we look forward to you joining us next time on iTunes or at our website www.seacoastvineyard.com dot com.